Greetings and welcome everyone to this week's edition of A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. I'm your host, Adam Thurwell, and the show, as always, is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. Thank you for tuning in. And on this week's show, I'm welcoming author Matt McGinn. Matt has just finished a book called Against the Elements. It's covering the explosion of Icelandic football. But we're going to be talking about Icelandic culture, the music, the people, and everything that goes into making up a really extraordinary country and a very interesting football story, which Matt covers extensively in his book and we're going to talk about today. We're going to dive into it now. Hope everyone enjoys the show. You can get with us on social media in the meantime at healthy underscore obsession. And again, big thank you to everyone that's checking out the show and listening. It's much appreciated. my pleasure to welcome Matt McGinn, author of Against the Elements, to the podcast today. Matt, how are you doing, mate? Very good, thanks. Pleased to be here. Good, good. Yeah, it's great to have you. So before we dive into the book, which I've just finished, by the way, and I think it serves as uh, an adventure book almost as much as a football book because there's so many different amazing stories in it from yourself being on a fishing boat watching games and uh, the music music scene in Iceland. It covers a bit of everything. So before we get into that, just tell everyone a bit about your own background and kind of where you're from and your story uh, getting to a writing the book. Um, so I'm, I'm from the UK. Uh, at the time when I when I came up with the idea for the book, I was actually living in Madrid. I spent spent a couple of years in Madrid working for a, a sports newspaper out there, mm-hmm. um, and it was during an evening shift at that paper where the idea hit me. I suppose to write the book. Um, it was during the qualifiers for the 2018 World Cup in Russia, and the TV in the office was set to uh, the channel where it kind of skips around the different matches depending on where the action is. And it kept going back to Turkey versus Iceland. Uh, and Iceland got a 3-0 win in Turkey, which is uh, pr- you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty yeah. remarkable when you think of the, the, the size of the two nations. And that, and that, I don't think it quite confirmed their qualification for, for Russia, but it certainly made it very probable. And it was at that point that I, I wanted to read more about Iceland myself. And uh, as there hadn't been a book written, I thought I'd, I'd take the plunge and give it a go myself. So here we are three years later. Yeah, definitely. And, and was there a moment where there was like uh, just a bit of inspiration where you thought like this is, this is something I want to write about? Because obviously there's a big undertaking, right? So to pick up a pen and well, proverbial pen and write a book about something. So was there a, a moment that was just like, all right, I've got to cover this? Yeah, well, I, so where I was working at the time, I had a colleague, um, a writer called Robbie Dunn, who had just finished writing a book about Rio Vallecano, the, the kind of third club of Madrid. Mm. So seeing him go through that process changed the way I thought about books. You know, I'd always thought it was something that was written by other people and it, it always seemed like quite a distant ambition. But seeing a colleague, someone that I was friends with doing it, made me realize that yeah actually this this is attainable mm. um so i, I suppose w- within that context when i became interested in iceland and realized that no one had written about it and there was a bit of a gap there to explore i had that that confidence to you know to go ahead and do it myself which i probably wouldn't have done had i been in a different situation without that without that background of writing around me 
Yeah, definitely. And, and it's, again, it's so, so well written. It covers a, a bit of everything. So was the idea when you were piecing together the, the manuscript for the book, was it to cover just a, a variation of topics uh, from music and, and everything that goes into the culture in Iceland? Or was it originally just a, a bit more of a, a football directed book, if you will, which was covering the journey of Iceland? No, uh, right from the start, I wanted it to go beyond football and look at things like Icelandic culture, Icelandic society, things like you've mentioned, the music scene. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Iceland produces a completely disproportionate number of musicians in all kinds of musical genres and also produces a disproportionate number of footballers. So it's little things like that that I found quite interesting. Uh, and, And more generally, I think, when you delve into the culture of a place and the personality of a place, it becomes a lot easier to understand what happens on the pitch because you know what, what happens on the pitch, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. If you know mm. what I mean, it, it reflects what's happening elsewhere. So I, I think it was important in order to tell the story of Icelandic football to also tell the story of Iceland more broadly. Yeah, definitely. And, and the book covers, as we've said, so many of these different topics. But one thing that it really stood out to me was the the sort of transition into uh, professionalizing the coaches and also the facilities, which they just sound amazing in Iceland, right? There's, there's been talked about a lot, the, the improvement of the facilities to provide access for players around the country. Did, did you see this when you were writing the book and doing the research that, that this kind of holistic approach for Iceland at large as a culture, but as fo- uh, football as well, which was a reflection? of society as well yeah absolutely i mean yeah like you've touched on the facilities are absolutely elite frankly mm. it's yeah so many times i'd walk past an indoor pitch and hear the thump of a ball and just have this urge to join in mm. um yeah so uh, previously because of the climate football was a a four or five month of the year pastime um and around the late 90s there there began in Iceland this campaign to invest in in physical football infrastructure. So what has got most of the press are the big cavernous indoor pitches. But alongside that, they also built about 150, 160 uh, small AstroTurf pitches, which you see absolutely everywhere. Every village, every neighbourhood within Reykjavik, they're they're just dotted absolutely everywhere. Mm. Um, And the effect of all that is that pretty much everyone in Iceland has quite easy access to very good facilities, which I think is something that, you know, you, you can't say for many places. And, um, you know, coming, coming from the UK background myself, I think we have a lot of pitches here, but we don't have many pitches that are free to access. A lot of them uh, are locked up and quite expensive to play on, which denies a lot of people opportunities. So I think, it was really brilliant to see that holistic emphasis in Iceland. You know, football isn't just for those who are showing promise or those who are playing at a high level. It's for everyone who wants to play and it's intrinsically beneficial for everyone to have that access to football. Have you seen it where it's easy, I think, maybe for people to get and maybe like jump on the bandwagon of like, oh, Iceland have done this and it's gone well. So now we need to replicate, you know, people do it with Germany or Spain. And so mm-hmm. have you seen a, a bit of a trend emerge where there is a movement by whether it's by local governments to implement a similar strategy as far as providing um, more playing outlets for younger players? Yeah, I think so. I think nations are certainly 
and you know within nation within nations smaller you know cities or clubs or whatever are certainly looking to Iceland and what they've achieved and trying to work out if they can take some element of it and implement it where they're from um i'd i'd say that obviously there are parts of 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 the icelandic model if you want to call call it that that you could extract but i think i i i try and view it like a a recipe with a lot of ingredients and if you take one of the ingredients out it 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 changes you know the, the final dish so to speak so i think I mean, frankly, the main thing that Iceland has is a lot of money to, to be able to invest in these kind of schemes. And alongside that, it has a, a kind of social, de- social democratic political uh, political framework in which, you know, it's, it's widely accepted that there will be a lot of, a lot of um, spending on social welfare programs and things like that. And I think it's quite rare to have that. I mean, out, outside of the Scandinavian countries, there aren't that many other countries that I think have the the resources and the will to invest in in public sports in the way that Iceland has. Yeah, and it sounds like living in the US where everything costs money, right? To like open the door and like breathe outside, it's like a, an expensive place to live. It sounds like slightly uh, utopic of <laughs> of a, a country to like yeah. take such good care of their citizens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and have you seen that? Like I remember reading in the book that it's a similar approach to music as well. That I think it was one of one of the politicians mentioned that it's seen as like a, a right for the people. Uh, he referenced like Socrates that if uh, football and music improve, then the, like the spirit of the country improves. Is that something else you're seeing in, in mainly in Scandinavian countries? But has anyone else picked that up as well? It seems like such a simple idea, but maybe maybe it's. Oh, it uh, does. Yeah, Yeah. so this, like you say, so essentially, if you're a kid in Iceland, you will be supported by the state or, you know, subsidized to an extent to do and to pursue whatever you're interested in, whether that is playing the saxophone, playing handball, football, basketball, whatever that may be. Mm. Um, And I think this has always been the case in Iceland, but particularly in if we're looking at sport, that belief in the intrinsic benefits of sport really grew in strength in the 1990s. So in Iceland, in the early 90s, there were questionnaires that were handed out to 15 and 16-year-olds across the country. And they came back with some quite alarming results about alcohol and cigarette consumption. Mm. So there was a bit of hand-wringing going on in Iceland around that time. But what they also showed... Uh, was that those kids who participated regularly in strenuous exercise had far better outcomes in terms of, um, you know, cigarettes, alcohol, and uh, academic performance as well, I think. And throughout the 90s, there were, there were several more similar studies looking at the, the societal benefits of participation in sport. Mm. And out of that came you know, the massive, the massive investment in football infrastructure and the investment in coaching as well. So it really gained momentum in the 90s. And that creates this situation that we have now where I, I think there are, there are a few better places in the world to be a young, a young person interested in football than Iceland. Oh, yeah. and that that sentence alone is like pretty uh like that that's just like speaks volumes right like ice on this tiny country in the middle of the Atlantic is one of the best places for a young person to play football it's incredible yeah. 
Yeah, although I think that that smallness does uh, deliver certain benefits. I think it, it kind of goes against what we consider to be beneficial in the world of sport. We, we, if we were to create an ideal sporting nation, it would certainly have more people in than Iceland. But having said that, the smallness can deliver benefits. Uh, I think it's it's far easier to implement these kind this kind of investment in football when it's for 350,000 people rather than 100 million people. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's such an interesting an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And I, th- I think alongside that as well, when you've got role models in a small country like this, I, I go into this into the in the book a little bit. It it becomes a lot easier for young people to believe that they themselves can follow in the paths of the people that they see around them when when it's such a small interlinked community. Um, you know, if I if I were to see a footballer in England doing well, well, when I'm a bit past that stage now, I think my my uh, chance of professional football have gone. But say <laughs> a, a kid a kid looking up to their their idol in the England team you know maybe they'll see something in common with that player that they that makes them believe that they too can achieve what what their idol has achieved in iceland i think you know there's a pretty good chance that you will know some you will know the player or you'll know the player's brother or your mate would have worked with their sister or something like that yeah all of the achievements that happen in iceland i think feel quite close which creates this this feeling that that the players are almost an extension of the community when they're representing the nation. You know, they're not, they feel very close and it feels like they're almost playing on behalf of, of, of your neighbours and your family like that. Yeah, and, and one, one thing that really stood out to me when reading the book and it was like very inspiring was this Icelandic mentality of uh, like yeah. t- togetherness and just like the, the spirit of everyone doing everything for kind of like the communal good, but also like on the world stage of the World Cup. So talk to me a little bit about that, like just at large, the Icelandic mentality, which is, is touched on really well in the book, but just give us a little bit of background on that because it was fascinating to read about that. Yeah, so uh, essentially that is, that draws on the idea that you only have to go back about two or three generations from the current crop of footballers to their grandparents and great grandparents Mm. to get to a time in Iceland where it was still very difficult to live and very difficult to get by because farming and fishing were the two main options. Um, Farming, you're working on pretty unfertile land that will occasionally erupt. And if you're fishing, then you're going out into the, into the North Atlantic and that's pretty perilous as well. And that creates a kind of stoicism and industriousness um, because those values were were what were necessary to survive. And I think those values remain quite undiluted in Iceland at the minute. They've, they've, they've kind of dripped down the family trees to, to the current crop of footballers. And they're very proud of that as well. So you see players, you know, for example, Aaron Gunnarsson, the captain, who's got a huge, a huge back tattoo of Norse imagery and Vikings and that kind of stuff. And it's clearly very important to him to know that he is representing the generations that have come before him and, and representing the values, that, you know, their values of uh, togetherness and hard work on the football pitch. So that, I think that's where the mentality is, is interesting. I think there's a maybe a tendency to romanticize it as you know this viking this viking toughness and things like that yeah. which 
you know doesn't have a great deal of basis in in physiological fact i don't think but having said that you know if an icelandic player believes in the moment in the 90th minute that they derive some kind of strength as a result of of, of viking lineage then it creates a um uh, a placebo effect and who's to say that that doesn't deliver benefits as well for the team yeah i mean if it works it works right <laughs> exactly and then one, one one really cool part of the book that you've got this like all these different adventures in writing this book and meeting all these uh like really cool people you have to remind me that the captain of the boat's name when you were watching the match was it was it biggie biggie yeah captain biggie <laughs> yeah so th- this is like a, a real what, what was that like being on the boat with the game going on how did that even come about like what was the sort of uh idea behind that about going on the boat to watch this game with the crew so right from the start of the book you know the world cup was coming up and i thought an interesting way to add a bit of color to the the, the people and the places would be to break up the book with these chapters in which i watched the match in different parts of iceland and a fishing boat just seemed like a really fitting and really interesting place to do that mm. so it, it came about in it came about in a way that is is quite it raises a few eyebrows but it's also quite typical of the way that Iceland works so myself and, and Joseph Fox the photographer who, who worked with me on the book were in a, a gym just on the outskirts of Reykjavik called Thor's Power Gym which is owned by Hafthor Bjornsson who uh, people either know as uh, I think it's called the mountain in Game of Thrones mm. or the former world's strongest man and we were in there chatting to a, another another guy who works out in there who's also a powerlifting champion and he was giving a personal training session and, and the guy he was giving the personal training session to um was friends with a captain on a boat so as we were chatting to him saying you know we really fancy going out on a boat for a few days he said oh, that's, that's, yeah no problem i'll give my mate a ring so he gives him a ring and then that's that <laughs> couldn't, couldn't believe how straightforward it was and um, that, that that seems to just be like a, a recurring theme with uh, like sort of everything that's described in the book is like everything's quite easy to access because of the like the if the way you described it earlier was like everyone sort of knows each other and it's there's almost like this trust and bond that perhaps we don't have in uh, a larger society with more people in it or is that yeah. is that romanticized a little bit from an outsider looking in no i think that's definitely fair so I, i'd say after i'd done about five interviews of you know football football folk in Iceland from those five people who were all pretty generous with their contact books it was quite straightforward to get in touch with almost anyone else who I wanted to interview hmm. and I think as well once I once I had a, a few people who could vouch for me and and you know they'll tell other people that I wasn't some complete rogue that yeah, also yeah. helped to open quite a few doors so yeah I think I think that story of getting on the boat kind of typifies iceland it's it's so so interlinked yeah that definitely and it's just the the geography of the country is so unique as well because of these conditions and you mentioned earlier about uh playing conditions you can only play four months of the year earlier so do you think that like uh, the, the government being involved and like having a, a hand and a bit more of a finger on the pulse do you think that that's something that like even a country like england for example where 
they could take note and maybe sort of shrink those programs down. I, I believe Germany did it and France did it with Leclerc Fontaine, where it was more like sort of regional academies. Do you think that some other countries might follow suit with that as well? Is that something that's happened over the last sort of five years or so? Yeah, I think so. I think maybe not country. So like you said, you, you had Spain who have a very defined way of playing. Mm. Germany, um, I think around 2000, they had this big rejig of their national football system. France have Clairefontaine. In England, we've got St George's Park, uh, which is a kind of national football centre. Mm. So I think all of these countries already already have their kind of national DNA, as it's called in England. Um, but I, I certainly think there are a lot of countries, a lot of smaller countries, who could take a great deal from Iceland. And I think we're already seeing that. So, for example, Hong Kong uh, have as their, I think he's the technical director of the Hong Kong FA, is, is an Icelander. Okay. Um, and the former coach of, of Iceland, Hamer Helgdamson, is now working in, uh, in Qatar for a Qatari club. And this is pure speculation on my part, but I wonder if that's him being, uh, you know, ready to take over the Qatar national team for, for the, for the um, tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think it would make sense. Uh, and actually on that point, I think the Gulf States, despite being so different from Iceland in many ways are actually quite similar in terms of countries that would be suited to, to replicate what Iceland has done mm. in football, because you've got in both nations, very harsh climate, which is obviously the cold and, and the wind in Iceland and the, heat in, in the Gulf states. And you've also got a fair bit of money to be able to pump into the programs. So I think that's, that's quite interesting. I think there could be, you know, of all the countries, they've got a bit of scope to be able to replicate Iceland. Yeah, interesting that like there's such a vast difference. That that's really uh, interesting to think about. One one thing that another thing that like stood out for me is like the just the Icelandic mentality, not only on a football pitch, but which it's a trickle down effect to the footballers. Is like it's not arrogance or ego at all. It's just almost this like unbelievable belief in themselves that they can do anything that seems to be like yeah. a very common theme and idea did, did you see that just kind of across the country from fishermen to footballers like was that something that's quite common yeah i'd say so i think they're very very relaxed in situations that other people would not be relaxed in mm. and i think one you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to attribute that to, to be honest. But there is there's one phrase that's quite prominent in Iceland, <clears throat> which is Thetaredast, um, which essentially means things will work out OK in the end if we all pull together. Hmm. And there was a poll conducted by the University of Iceland in the last five years or so. And that revealed that 45 percent of Icelanders today live their life according to that saying. So I think I think that shows the extent to which values from the past still hold a lot of weight in Iceland and still dictate their their view their their approach to life effectively. Um, I think that kind of mentality of things will work out okay. I think probably began as a coping mechanism back in the day when you had to believe in that because if not, in the dark winters when the wind is lashing down on your on your uh, humble house if you didn't hold some kind of belief that things would work out you'd just go mad 
So I think it has its roots there and, it, and it's still like a lot of those values from that era, it's still undiluted in, in contemporary Icelandic society mm. and still on the football pitch. I mean, I suppose a, a footballing example of that would be England against Iceland at Euro 2016. You saw England uh, go ahead early. And I think most people, me included, at that point thought, job done for England. Uh, you know, we've got, got the early goal. That will draw out Iceland. They'll have to attack, which they don't want to do. and then. England have got the pace to exploit them on the counter-attack. But obviously Iceland didn't follow that script. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's because they have this phrase that's very prominent, that's not why they won, but I think it it reflects the kind of mentality that did allow them to come back into that game, that, that ability to reset, forget about what's just happened and focus on resolving it. Well, and there's like multiple examples of that, right? Where I think I'm not going to even going to try and pronounce it because I'll butcher it. But the, one of the islands which the volcano hit and everyone had to abandon, and the the story about the boat capsizing. I, I, this is a bunch of spoilers as well. I should probably shut up. But you know, I'm going to talk about the boat. <laughs> like the story about the the boat capsizing and the man swimming ashore, and there's like this. It's like built yeah. in. There's just survivors, right? That they they feel like they can sort of bounce back from anything, and also achieve anything yeah i think that's certainly how they view themselves Mm. and that's why i wanted to include those kind of stories in the book because you could read it and think what the hell is a story about a capsized fishing boat doing (laughs) (laughs) what's a story about a volcanic eruption doing in in a book about football but i think icelanders have this self-perception which is so focused on the the kind of things you you've just mentioned you know Mm. Uh, stoicism and togetherness and a kind of inner inner mental strength and I think those stories demonstrate that almost better than anything on a football pitch ever could yeah de- definitely uh, well, one thing that I was thinking about a lot as I was I was reading the actual football part of this was what, what what's next for Iceland I know that's probably a, a, the million dollar question but people can tend to be nostalgic right you can sort of kind of cling on to what happened previously in the last few years and the last couple of tournaments so what, what do you see next after studying and, and reading and learning about the culture and also football what do you think is next for the for the footballing sides of Iceland um so i think that depends on how you measure footballing success so i think in terms of the men's national team i suspect they will continue to overachieve but not quite at the same level as we've seen over the last five six years Mm. i think what we what we have at the minute is a a generation of players like gilfie sigurdsson aaron gunnarsson Corbyn Sigfusson, the kind of players that have uh, all emerged together. They all came through the youth system. They're all born within one or two years of each other. And they had the benefit of coming into the national team setup at a time when there was very little pressure for the team to do well. Yeah, so, they, so they were able to, to bed in together and, and then push on as a, as a unit. And I, I think the next group of players who replace them won't have that that luxury. They'll be expected now to go in and keep up the momentum. So I think that it'll be tricky for the for the men's national team to deal with that. I think the the women's team are pretty pretty well set in the in or around the the top twenty rankings, and they're pretty regular at the European Championships. So I think they're 
they're doing really well and I, and I think that will continue but then you can look at it in other ways as well for example how many professional players is Iceland producing and I, I think that will continue to grow um, I think the way that they coach in Iceland with a real emphasis on technique ball control uh, game intelligence these when you when you marry those things in with the more more intrinsic Icelandic mental qualities that we've already talked about I think you have a, a kind of profile of player that's very attractive to clubs all across Europe. So I think there'll, there'll continue to be a lot of talented Icelandic players moving abroad at a young age and, and coming through, you know, whether it's in Sweden or the Netherlands or, or England or wherever. One thing that stood out is uh, the open door policy of, of, you mentioned like the football halls and like the AstroTurf pitches, but also the clubs have really got an open door policy. So that is great for kids, right? Because you can go in and just sort of play. So you're getting so much repetition, whether it's in a, a structured environment or literally just going down and kicking a ball against the wall for a few hours. There seemed to be a lot of that, like sort of open door, come on in. And that, that's how you improve, right? Just by doing yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the point that the when I spoke to people at the FA, that's the point that they made. They said, mm. you know, you don't become a top level player by going to training three times a week and then playing a match at the weekend. You become a top player by by going down to the local pitch and playing until it's dark or you get shouted in for tea. Mm. It's, it's about that time that you put in outside practice to hone those skills that you've learned in practice. So the, the FA did some really smart things around that. They produced a what they called a skills DVD, and I, I haven't actually seen the DVD, so I'm not sure what the contents are. But as I understand it, it was I think a hundred different skills, drills, exercises, that kind of thing, demonstrated by national team players that was given to every youth player in Iceland. And where they could, or where it was possible, they had professional players coming back to their hometown to give it to the local kids so that it was something that they cherish and not something that would just gather dust with the DVDs on the shelf. But I think that shows that shows how the FA have been quite smart in, uh, yeah, not, not just being content with coaching players in a controlled environment, but also encouraging the players to express themselves on their own and mm. develop on their own. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's really very interesting. And one, one thing that it, it was very, uh, I, I would love for you guys just to hear you what your opinion is on it. Cause I read at the end of the book and it's like the over-professionalism of things. Uh, what do you think is meant by that? Because I, I think it was Norway and, and Denmark have been the examples of what over-professionalizing things could do. But, but what does that look like for Iceland? Do you think, is there something to be said for keeping things like quote-unquote amateur style yeah so this is this is an idea that a Icelandic sociologist called Vidor Halderson has come up with which I've which I've taken on because I think it makes really good sense which is that Iceland is currently doing well because it's surfing the balance between professionalism and amateurism mm. so what what he and I mean by that is that Icelandic players at the elite level, and, and that obviously filters down to youth levels in lower divisions, behave like elite athletes. They have the same uh, information on nutrition, training, strength and conditioning, tactics, all that kind of stuff in, in, in a lot of respects and facilities as well. 
uh, Icelandic football is very professional. And yet at the same time, it still retains this kind of amateur spirit whereby football is played purely for enjoyment's sake. It's just a, a leisure pastime and, and, and there's no more pressure on it. And I think that makes, re- that makes real sense to me. It makes sense that the balance between those two poles would produce a really, a really positive outcome for, the national, for, for national football. And, uh, and you mentioned Denmark and Norway, and they're both quite interesting examples because Denmark, uh, football in Denmark became professional, I think, in the late 70s. And then you saw the national team doing really well in the 80s and into the early 90s before mm. then dropping off after that. Similarly with Norway, they professionalised slightly later in the 80s, I think. And throughout the 90s, the Norwegian national team was 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 really successful. So that suggests that perhaps there's there's some kind of sweet spot when nations professionalise but retain some kind of residual amateurism mm. and, and you know manage to to harness that kind of balance. And I think Iceland maybe having seen the example of those two nations before them are perhaps in a better position to to retain that balance going forward. Yeah, definitely. And but one like I think one of the things that's like to think about for the FAs is like you still have to have the commercial element as well, right? So like the FA is still focused on growing the the opportunities commercially. So there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there from staying sort of amateurist versus yeah, you want to be at every tournament because of the money it can bring in. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they're they're very. Um, what's the word? I'd say they're very holistic in the FA in Iceland. So, like, yeah, they're commercially savvy. They're no mugs, but at the same time, they will, they won't, they won't just keep that money and and have it, you know, building up interest in a bank account somewhere. They will immediately reinvest it in club, out, give it out to Icelandic clubs to do whatever they see fit with it so they are yeah there, there is that I, I i don't think it is much of a conflict of interest in iceland actually i think that's good there are yeah um, <laughs> there are some people who would argue otherwise within icelandic football there are a few voices who are critical of the fa uh but not many and i think when you look at other associations across the world and you know, a lot of them are, are fairly shambolic and the governance is pretty poor. Yeah. So, I th- yeah, I think, you know, they won't be perfect, but they're, they're pretty good. Yeah, de- definitely. So what's next for you, Matt? What's, uh, what's life life like now for you? Uh, promotion, promoting the book and what, what's the next chapter for you? No pun intended. <laughs> um, taking a, a break from writing books for a while, I think. Yeah. It's got to be exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's an odd one actually because it. So I actually wrote it in the summer of two thousand. Well, summer and autumn of two thousand and eighteen. So it actually feels like quite a long time ago. Mm. But because of the, you know, the the various mechanisms of publishing, it took a while for it to come to the fore. So it hasn't actually felt like too much of a mad rush. It's been quite quite nicely spaced out. Um, but I've, I've, I'm now doing a PhD which looks at football and identity in Galicia in northern Spain so that's me for the next two or three years so a bit of a 
bit of a hike from Iceland. Yeah, yeah, let's switch, switch it up a little bit, but that's... Yeah, that's exactly, keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You've got, got to keep it fresh anyway. That's, it sounds really interesting. So the, the next thing I wanted to ask you is where can people go and buy the book and your own like social media channels and stuff like that so people can follow along? Yeah, we've got a Twitter account and Instagram account for the book. Uh, the Twitter is at A-T-E Iceland. And on Instagram, it is against underscore the underscore elements. Um, in the US, I believe the book isn't available until the, until uh, I think the 31st of March 2021. Uh, but if, if any listeners would like it earlier than that, then they can send a DM to the Twitter account and, and we can sort out some kind of direct direct postage from the UK. Yeah, perfect. And uh, it comes highly recommended. I enjoyed it, mate. It was excellent. Glad to hear. Yeah, cool. All right, sweet. Well, listen, Matt, it was, it was great having you on the show today. We appreciate you coming on and congratulations on the, the book. And we'll be looking forward to what comes next. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, mate. All right, that's it for today, everyone. It's full time on the show. Thank you again to everyone for tuning and listening. Hope you enjoyed. Back on Tuesday with myself and Mr. Thomas Hurdle for the weekly roundup. And until then, check us out on social media at healthy underscore obsession. And we will see you all again soon. Cheers.